welcome to the Hublic Sphere. Hello, welcome to the very first episode of the Hublic Sphere. We are a podcast created and maintained by early career researchers at the Trinity Long Room Hub. Each contributor that you hear from this season will come from a different section within the humanities. Now, this could mean you may hear an episode from a historian, from someone in classics, someone in law, and even more. And I'm going to be bringing you through our very first adventure in the humanities. Now, all season, we're going to be discussing one big question, power. How do we relate to it? What does it mean? And what can we do to get involved with some of the things that we are going to discuss over the course of this season? Hi, my name is Dawn Seymour Kloss, and I am a PhD candidate in medieval history at Trinity College Dublin. My specialty is women's rights under English common law in the 13th century. So that puts me in kind of a unique position to talk about accessibility and sources as we go through some of the topics we're going to discuss today. But today I've brought in Dr. Sparky Booker and Dr. Quiva Whelan, who are both members of the Friends of Medieval Dublin. Now, FMD, for short, is a public advocacy group dedicated to the preservation and education of all things having to do with the Middle Ages and more specifically, medieval Dublin. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Sparky and Quiva, and let's get cracking. Thank you, Don, and thank you for the invitation to talk to you today. I'm going to do two introductions right now. Firstly, I'm going to introduce myself, and then I'm going to briefly introduce the Friends of Medieval Dublin. My name is Quiva Whelan. I'm a research fellow at the Trinity Longroom Hub, the Arts and Humanities Research Institute of Trinity College Dublin. I'm an historian of primarily medieval Ireland. My research explores interactions between Ireland and Britain with a particular focus on book and manuscript history. And currently I'm involved in a very exciting public history project based here at the Trinity Longroom Hub about the Irish abroad. I'm interested in medieval culture and historiography. So historiography means the writing of history. So my research examines the stories we tell to explain contemporary and historic events and how we understand our place in the world. And I'm also interested in things like identity and language and how that changes over time. Now, I'm talking to you today because I'm a member of the Heritage and Research Group, the Friends of Medieval Dublin. So who or what is the Friends of Medieval Dublin? The Friends of Medieval Dublin is a research and study group dedicated to the protection and preservation of medieval Dublin, and we have a remit of education as well. Our board is comprised of, firstly, our chairman, uh, who currently is Professor Sean Duffy, Professor of Medieval Irish and Insular History, who's based at Trinity in the Department of History. Secondly, our current treasurer is Professor Emeritus Howard Clark, formerly of the School of History at University College Dublin. And I'm the Honorary Secretary of the Friends of Medieval Dublin. I have been since 2016. So the first chairman of the Friends of Medieval Dublin, Professor FX Martin of University College Dublin, was involved in actively fighting the threats to Dublin's medieval heritage, which we'll talk about later. And safeguarding heritage is still an important part of what we do, but we accomplish this today through activism if necessary, but also, and crucially, through education. 
And really, we want to share the knowledge and the new discoveries about medieval Dublin and share this with the wider scholarly community, but also the general public. And that's a huge part of what we do. And I know we're going to talk more about just how we do that over the course of this conversation. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. And Sparky. Uh, hi. Hi, guys. Um, very nice to see you. And thank you so much for inviting us to be part of this conversation. Um, I love talking about the Friends. Um, it's one of my favorite things that I do uh, as a historian. Um, I've been a member of the Friends since, I think, 2009. Um, and uh, I'm a historian of uh, later medieval Ireland focusing on social and cultural history um, based at Queen's University in Belfast, where I'm a, a lecturer. Fantastic to have you both here. Um, so something that we've seen a lot, particularly lately in the headlines is how history kind of gets, we'll call it used and abused and appropriated in, in various ways. And I feel like the friends are a really great starting point to maybe uh, having some of these conversations. Um, so I'm sure that the two of you can, can weigh in on this, but one of the things that really attracted me to join this, uh, particularly as an international student coming over, was that the Friends didn't begin just as a group of people who liked to sit around and talk about history, right? Our, we started off as something quite different. Um, we, we started as an activist group um, protecting heritage sites at a particularly tumultuous time. So I wonder if the two of you might weigh in a little bit um, on that history of the beginning of the Friends itself and maybe if that was something that motivated you to want to get involved. Yes, for me certainly um, it was. Um, it was before my time in terms of the original foundation of the Friends, um, but I know my mother was in school so she was slightly too young to be involved, but certainly has memories of that period. So in the 1960s, for anyone who doesn't know, the issue that was um, the problem which created the need for the Friends was that Dublin Corporation at the time wanted to build a new civic offices between um, the Christchurch Cathedral and the River Liffey and they stumbled across the heritage of medieval Dublin, the heart of Viking and Anglo-Norman Dublin and the question was you know the clash between progress or conservation what was going to happen and the Friends were created in part to try and protect that heritage and started a legal battle which was trying to you know give heritage a fighting chance um, to try and save some of it so that we can protect it for the city and the friends really were from the very start involved in it was a public movement you know 20,000 people were marching to try and save Wood Key which is the site that the uh, civic office was going to be built on so it really galvanized the general public, as well as people involved in heritage and, um, you know, archaeologists and historians. So really, it's something that we still try and do to monitor what's, what's happening in the heritage world and also try and advocate for, you know, new policies and new ways of protecting that, which we've been successful in, in a number of, of ways um, to try and, you know, make a positive impact in that regard as well as also just telling people about the, the heritage of the medieval city. Yeah, one of the important outgrowths of that um, movement, protest movement against Woodkey, which involved occupying the site um, and making legal challenges 
um, to the construction on this really spectacular um, uh, Viking site in, in the center of Dublin. One of the reasons it was so spectacular is because it was uh, anaerobic, which means um, it was waterlogged. So all of the organic material hadn't rotted. What that means is that you could actually see the houses, you know, houses that people were living in, um, in the Hiberno North city. Um, so it's a really uh, unusual site, a really remarkable site. Um, and in one sense, the protest movement um, didn't succeed in, in its aims in that the civic offices were built. Um, but as Cuiva said, the Friends did have significant successes after that, um, and really on the back of that, from the backlash of, of the destruction of Woodkey. For example, the city archaeology position created in 1991 to monitor ongoing construction in the city and try to protect as much um, heritage as possible. So it's kind of in, in line with the founding of the Friends, um, our chairman, uh, currently uh, Professor Sean Duffy at Trinity, has also been, you know, monitoring what's going on along with the city archaeologist. So things that need to be to be challenged, I suppose, and brought to public attention. So Carrig Mines Castle was something relatively recently, which was something that was going to be destroyed um, again because of you know, this progress, um, trying to build a road, and also Tara, obviously this hugely important for anybody interested in the history of, of Ireland. So important sites that need to be, be monitored and be protected. Um, and the Friends still have a role, I think, in trying to, to monitor that and just bringing awareness of it. And I mean, as Sparky was saying with the Wood Key um, advances, like, 80,000 finds were excavated from the Woodkey site. You know, we have an awful lot of material that was preserved that you can still see. You can go to see some of them in the National Museum. Um, some of the walls, some of it, unfortunately, were, were destroyed. The one that always gets to me is there's about 20 yards of it that were just bulldozed of this medieval city wall of about um, 1,100. And you can still see the, where it used to run in the, in the pavement. Um, as a sort of a reminder of what was there. But it's, I think, a reminder to everybody as well to, you know, if there's something that's important, then they, they need to stand up and say something about it and do something about it. The Friends were created to try and do that, and we still try and monitor what's going on. So that if there's something important that's relating to medieval heritage of Dublin or of Ireland, then we can actually do something. And we need the support of the general public as well it's it's we're not doing this from any position of um isolation this is something that's was from the very start was about you know people just the general public trying to preserve their heritage i think perhaps one of the things that has particularly struck me about uh this organization and, and why i felt that it really deserved to be highlighted in this way is throughout our first season we're discussing truly modalities of power. And in as many ways as you can imagine doing that, each interviewer that you're going to hear over the course of the season is coming from a completely different perspective and a completely different discipline. So I believe as historians, we, we tend to see the biggest modality of power that we deal with, the institution itself, right? Who has access to information? How is that information being disseminated? Who can access it? Um, and the friends sit 
very clearly academic adjacent, which puts us in such a unique position to, to speak to people and to speak about these issues of accessibility. Um, that's one of the things that, that I think is particularly interesting about the work that we do, not just the symposium that we run every year, which is always free and open to anyone who wants to come, but also the extra events that get put on, particularly during Heritage Week, that are not aimed at those who exist only within the institution. So I was wondering if, um, if perhaps there was a, a specific event or thing that you've been a part of in your time with the friends that have really helped you bridge that gap of stepping outside of, you know, Trinity or Queens and really connecting with the public in this meaningful way. Uh, yes, yes. Um, certainly the, the Tales series, um, has been a really rewarding one for me. Uh, and this began in 2010, I think, when I was still doing my PhD. Um, and uh, Grace O'Keefe, another PhD student at the time at Trinity, um, and I were both in the Friends of Medieval Dublin, both working on Medieval Dublin as part of our academic research. Um, but we also participated in the outreach activities of the Friends. So, the way it came about was that we did walking tours during Heritage Week. And we just we just got so excited after the walking tours because people could not get enough of it. Um, and, you know, coming out of the, the library, you know how it is. Um, you are in the midst of, of this period, this intensive research. You're at your desk hours and hours and hours. And occasionally you think, what's the point of all this? You know, is anyone else going to be interested in it. Um, so selfishly, the outreach activities are really were a way for me during the PhD, and, and this is really ongoing. You know, you just find it very rewarding that people are interested in, in, this, in this research, in the history of the medieval city. Um, and that kind of connection um, to, you know, people who are coming from work, you know, who have you know, all these other things in their life and they still carve out time to come and walk around the medieval city um, to connect in their own city in that different way. I just think it's really, um, it's actually very powerful uh, to be part of. And yeah, and really, it is a way for people to, to enjoy their own city more, you know? And, and I say that because people have told me that, you know, when you're on the walking tour and you're going down Wine Tavern Street, and you're talking about uh, the the taverns that used to be there, and you know uh, the site that was Woodkey site there on your right. You know, people are just so excited. You know, they think, "Oh, I've walked down the street a million times, and I never knew what was here." Um, so, for me, the walking tours and then the the tales series, which is a lunchtime lecture series. Um, designed to be, you know, at lunchtime so people can pop out from work on their lunch break and just listen for 30 or 40 minutes to uh, some some topic about medieval Dublin. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed them and I think they're an incredibly important helping people connect with the medieval past, you know, helps from a lobbying point of view, you know, they're going to care more if some amazing medieval site is threatened. The more they know about it, the more they'll they'll be invested in it. I think as well, Sparky, one of the things that always 
I get it, you know, it's enjoyable when you're giving a tour and then somebody says, oh, yes, I was on the, the march. And a lot of time people will wait until the end and because was anybody on the march? And they'll say, oh, yeah, it was me. But that's a huge part of, of what, for me anyway, the heritage of uh, the organisation is. Um, it's literally, it's, it's people. And, you know, showing people either that lived in Dublin for years or their whole life or are just visiting something that they didn't know. And the people saying, oh, gosh, I've been here for years and I didn't realise this was part of our heritage or that there's so much of the medieval wall still standing. Um, and I like to finish my uh, walking tours in the northwest corner of the the old city walls, which is, um, it's got a tower there, Isolde's Tower. And it was preserved, um, it was one of the things that was protected, and it's kind of behind um, a barrier, so you can see it. Um, but it's something that is overlooked and you don't really notice it all that much. And... For me, anyway, it's a case of reminding people that it actually still matters what happens. And if we sort of forget about it and say, oh, somebody else will look after it, they won't. We, we have to be aware of what's going on. And if anybody sees anything that's happening that needs to be protected or flagged in some way, that they should contact, you know, somebody who can do something about it to have that bit of, of energy behind the protection of, of the heritage, whatever, whatever period of, of history it's it's from that you can make a difference and that it's important to do that so for me that would be something that I think anyone who gives a walking tour I think gets something out of it as well as just um enjoying the the walk and the the medieval city and uh, also for um heritage week this year uh given our uh, covid scenario uh, we're going to go digital so we're going to organize virtual walking tours so i'm in the middle of trying to work out exactly how that will work which is proving very interesting but it will happen and uh we will let you know on all the relevant social media accounts i'm so glad that you brought up individual spots within the town that, that make you feel a certain way um I've been giving the walking tours now for two years, kind of attempting to follow in y'all's footsteps. But um, I often go by that same site and I'm, I'm actually writing a thesis on Isolde Pentoff, who has incredible connections with that particular site. And I found that whenever you start telling people about a real person who, who had this, this full life that you can describe, it really is this, it, it becomes a transformative kind of outside classroom experience for anyone there. And I've, I've never experienced anything quite like that. And it has been, I think, the most enjoyable part of this research is reminding them that this human experience, no matter how far apart you're, you're spaced out in time, there aren't that many differences. And, and we almost have a duty of care to these places and these people. So it, it really has been truly special to be a part of it. So thank you for what you've done in, in creating it and keeping it going. But um, there is another thing that I'd like to, to ask you about. And it's kind of a little bit to the left field of where we've been going. So as medieval historians, we get a lot of interesting questions, right? Sometimes we're prepared for them, sometimes we're not. Uh, but there, there used to be a meme that floated around quite a lot, actually, that was, you know, what my mom thinks I do, what my friends think I do, and what I actually do. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with these. Um, and we've been the butt of that joke quite a bit. So I'd like to ask you, what is it that you think an everyday person, right, someone who is not interested in, in history at all, um, 
what do you think they think you might actually do day in and day out? Yes, sit in an archive with white gloves on 100% of the time and kind of, I I think one of the key uh, aspects of like public perceptions of historians, but most of all kind of medieval or pre-modern historians is that you're reading something that no one will ever know about. That disconnect, like the way you're doing is so esoteric and sort of um, unconnected from the real world. That's just sort of you and this, dusty manuscript that's falling apart in your hands I mean that's the question I get most people are like and do you have your own pair of white gloves <laughs> well you know um so and of course there is some that's that's not untrue obviously the the study of documents and uh, of manuscripts and archival research is at the heart of what we do but I think what's missing there in the public perception is the second phase which is just as important which is then communicating those results, you know, analyzing them and then communicating them to your students and to other researchers and ideally to to the public more generally. I think as well, one of the things that I hope <laughs> that the friends do um, in our annual symposium in May is it's accessible to everybody. So you get, you know, a couple of hundred people who are coming to listen to, to history and archaeology and some of them are, are involved in that sphere in a professional sense or just because they're interested. And some of them are just coming to listen and are never going to be for them to actually hear what people are saying, ask questions. And I think that's, that's important because it allows people access to archaeologists who are digging the sites and they can also see that there isn't just one answer to something, you know, that their history and archaeology and trying to interpret the past is actually challenging. And it's not something that we have answers for everything, um, but it's, you know, the combined efforts of lots of different people and thinking about things in various ways sort of allows you to then make up some sense of, of what happened, but that it's it's for everybody. It's not just for you know, academics or archaeologists to talk to themselves uh, and not engage with other disciplines and um, the general public. So I think some some of the events that we run at uh, the Friends try and deal with the, the very thing that you were asking about, you know, what do people think? Well, actually, come and listen and hear for yourself. You can actually uh, get involved in that. You can hear and ask questions yourself. Yeah. And I think that is one of the important things about our walking tours and also our other events is that the people that give them are active researchers. So there's no script. Everyone has to make their own walking tour. So, you know, it really reflects their own research interests, their own research. So if you go on a bunch of them, you know, you're getting the opposite of a kind of canned ladybird history. You know, you're not getting a series of facts you're getting one researcher's interpretation um, and interest. And I always try to make that explicit, you know, and I tell them what I'm most interested in. And I say, if anyone wants to talk to me about medieval marriage and divorce, I'll talk, you know, we can spend the whole time talking about that. And occasionally that happens. You know, you get people very keen on particular aspects of what you do. And I think that's um, just valuable for the reason that Quiva was saying, you know, it's, you're showing through the exam, this one specific example, um, how complex history is and how 
how much it is not monolithic or, or a series of facts. So we'd like to switch gears and talk a little bit about um, an event that we did in 2018, which was a dramatic reading of St. Patrick's Purgatory, and Quiva was quite instrumental in putting this together. Um, this was a really interesting thing that took us out of the books and into a physical space where you could hear uh, really the way that language is being used, even if it wasn't necessarily in the original um, but really putting you in a time and place. So, Quiva, would you mind telling us a little bit about your process of, of bringing this to, to everybody? Absolutely. So, this is a text that I've been researching, written by a man by the name of James Young, who was born in about 1374 in Dublin. And he's working in Dublin as a notary, so he's writing legal documents and also commissions for other people who, who pay him, so he gets a little bit of, of extra money. And a visitor comes to Dublin on his way to St. Patrick's Purgatory in Loch Derg in County Donegal, so right up um, through Ireland. He's going to be travelling all the way through and then all the way back to Dublin. And he's from Hungary, um, Lawrence is his name, and he basically uh, you know, wants to record the, the journey. And James Young writes down, or tells us anyway, that he writes down what Lawrence has told him and uh, the text is in Latin. So obviously to get, let it be accessible to more people, I thought what might be useful is to look at the text and try and work out how we could really break it down and, and make it more accessible. There are lots of different people who Lawrence meets when he's going on this, this pilgrimage uh, to one of the most important pilgrimage sites in medieval Europe. And he sort of tells us about the conversations that he has. And I use a translation, Latin or an English translation of the Latin text and asked, asked my friends in the Friends of Medieval Dublin to help with the, you know, dramatic reading of it. So we all took some of the parts and we're going to just basically read it to give people a, a sense of the text. And I didn't want to embellish it and, you know, change it in any way. It's actually quite an interesting text in itself. So I decided we could use the Woodkey venue. So this is actually a, a venue, which is uh, Dublin City Council's venue, which they um, very kindly allow us to use for, uh, for events, for free events. And the backdrop is the medieval wall. So you can actually see some of the wall that was preserved behind the speaker or the speakers, whoever's um, presenting. So it's a fantastic space really to to have a, a medieval event, particularly about medieval Dublin. So we were just using that space, just speaking, and I, mean, I gave a little bit of an introduction, and then there was um, images relevant uh, on the, the screen behind us. But really, it was just trying to show people what the text actually was and give you an insight into something that was written in Dublin in 1411, probably in that general area. James Young's father was, seems to have been um, living uh, near Merchant's Quay, which is quite close to the Woodkey venue. So it, for me, it just gave people an opportunity to hear something that they wouldn't otherwise hear because it's not accessible. Um, there isn't a, a book that you can go into the shop and buy um, that would give you either the Latin or the, the English version. So it was a way of, I suppose, just making it accessible to people. That was such a wonderful ad, Quiva. It was such an exciting thing to be involved in this reading of Young's account of the voyage to St. Patrick's Purgatory. And one of the things that I thought was 
really uh, fascinating about it and that really fit in with our mission or one of our missions as the Friends was that it was um, allowing sort of unmediated access to the historical material to the public. You know, we weren't telling anyone what to think about this document. I think that's a really important part of all of our events, the the question and answer section where we listen to what our audiences have to say, the questions that they have. I think as well, the other thing that you learn from is people who are doing things uh, that aren't doing exactly what you're doing. So for instance, archaeologists and my own research doesn't... um, I wouldn't call myself an archaeologist at all, but yet archaeology is actually hugely important. And, you know, people that are involved, uh, Lindsay Simpson being um, one who's uh, hugely involved in the Friends, um, I think really does important work in, you know, communicating to the audience, helps you keep the conversation going. Yeah, the the union of history and archaeology is really um, something that's been notable about the Friends since since the beginning. Um and the fact that all of our symposia, for example, and the proceedings from our symposia, they contain papers that are archaeological in nature and those that are historical. And we can't understand Dublin's medieval past without both of those disciplines, without some understanding of both. Well, thank you. Well, one of the things that I promised you I would tell you in the beginning is why public. I know this may seem out of left field, but just go with me for a minute. So we began this conversation talking about what I would call the academic sphere, what we do for a living, what we're interested in, what we research. We've moved into the public sphere. So what we can do without really having to worry about accessibility too much. And now we're starting to talk about this weird gray space that exists between them. And that's what we're calling the public sphere, which is a terrible pun on the Trinity Long Room Hub where the producers of this are based. And really what that means is that space between academia and the public where we can have informed conversations and participate with one another on these issues, whatever they may be. So in this season, we're talking about power, right? Power and accessibility. Who has it? How do you get it? How are you navigating it? And the friends exist within that gray space, within that space where they're not necessarily part of academia as an institution, but they do work with it. And there is something that we're seeing quite a bit, um, whether it's on in, in the form of questions in our walking tours or in the form of questions in the classrooms that we all work in. There has been a tradition, we'll call it, uh, particularly in Western politics, of using and abusing the Middle Ages, particularly imagery, Um, And we don't often stop and think about that and our responsibility of what what is it that we're actually going to do about it? What is it that we, the people working on this, really want you to know about um, these images or these kinds of conversations? And so I just wanted to pause for a moment and really consider what have you come across something that you would like people to know about medieval Dublin or a specific image that you've come into contact with um, and maybe how the representation of that is changing. Yes. Yeah. I, so I think sometimes as medievalists and honestly, I, I think about this more in my teaching um, than in my capacity as a friend of medieval Dublin, but I think it's really relevant in everything we do as medievalists. Um, I think that we think it's self-evident that the Middle Ages were 
complex, that they were home to um, multi-ethnic societies, that there were trade links that stretched not just across um, what is now Europe, but throughout kind of um, Europe, Asia, Africa, all across the Mediterranean world. Um, It's so self-evident to us, appropriations of the medieval past, um, perhaps most famously and very dangerously by the Nazis and now by neo-Nazis and white supremacist groups, not only in the US, but but within Europe and elsewhere. We know they're nonsense. We know that the idea of racial purity is complete and utter nonsense. Um, We know that it doesn't reflect um, any biological realities. We know that it doesn't reflect the world as it was in the Middle Ages. The Vikings who are held up by white supremacist groups as sort of this um, great conquering people were incredibly assimilative. Everywhere they went, they blended in the local population. You know, they've no sooner landed in in Normandy, um, which takes its name from, from the Vikings, the Northmen, then they were intermarrying, converting to Christianity, and becoming sort of Frenchified. Right? They do the same thing in Ireland. The Middle Ages is a period of migration, of um, cultural mixing. That's a lot of what my academic work is about, is about the mixing of people. One of the problems is that we don't bother to say those truths that are so, that seem so obvious to us, that it's not grounded in in any fact, um, that it's just a complete um, self-serving fiction with no relation to the actual Middle Ages or the people that, that lived in that period. Thank you, Sparky. I think that you've you've hit on something um, right there, particularly at the at the very end of your statement of of things that are self evident, and that it is our responsibility to speak up. And I think that that goes right back into the message of why the Friends were founded and what we continue to do. We always speak up. We present something to you, whether it's in the form of a of a heritage week talking tour, walking tour, or a dramatic reading or a lecture series that you can do. But we also protect things. We we play an active role in getting involved whenever we need to. And we would like anyone, regardless of what you're interested in, whether it's medieval history, modern history, economics, it doesn't matter. Get involved, right? Speak to people, participate, operate within this gray space that brings the institution into the public and vice versa. I think that's the most powerful position that we have. So thank you both for participating in this. And I'm not quite done with you yet. So there is uh, one, one last really important burning question that I have, um, and that is if, if you were able to tell our audience more, right, if you were able to point them in the direction of a resource or a series of resources, um, what would be some of the things that maybe I could use to learn more about the Friends or the Middle Ages more broadly? Well, I would say the first thing to do is to uh, get your computer or your phone and go to our website, so fmd.ie. And on that, we have got a little bit about the Friends and the foundation of the Friends and kind of gives you a bit of history of what I've just uh, tried to explain earlier. But also it gives other details. It gives a bibliography of medieval Dublin and that's free to use. You just 
look at what you're interested in, uh, read down through it and uh, see if you can find something that's um, of interest to you. The other thing that we have on the website is details of any of the publications that the Friends have created over the years. So Professor Howard Clark, who is um, currently our treasurer um, and was there um, at the very start of the Friends Foundation, he edited uh, very important volumes on medieval Dublin. So we have details of them there. And also our current chairman, um, Professor Sean Duffy, who's also editing the proceedings of our conference. So it's, you know, an annual um, journal about medieval Dublin. So it's a fantastic resource for anything that you're interested in in medieval Dublin. It's the place to start. And I have up on the website, um, a, there's a list of the contents of that. So you can you can download that, read that, see what, what is there, um, maybe find something that isn't there and see if you can, you can do some research and, and fill a gap. But that, to me, anyway, would be the place to start about medieval Dublin in terms of, of reading. And the other thing to mention is that on the website, we have little videos of some of our talks. So Sparky was involved in uh, the lunchtime lectures that she's mentioned earlier, and some of them are recorded. And you can listen to the podcasts of some of those talks, which are, again, freely available on the website and browsing through them gives you a sense of, of what's, what is there. Um, the other book that I haven't mentioned actually is the one that uh, Sparky's edited. And Sparky, I don't know if you want to say it, something about that in terms of, of the audience and what you were trying to do with the... With the tales, you mean? Yeah. Um, so the tales began, as I've said, as a lunchtime lecture series uh, for free. And if you want to watch some of the lectures, they're available, as, as Quiva mentioned, on the website um, to take a look at. And we ran them uh, in cooperation with Dublin City Council and in their beautiful venue, the Wood Key venue, which they allowed us to use for free. Um, and it was such a wonderful spot, such a sort of evocative um, and appropriate place for um, those lectures because each of the speakers gave their talk against the backdrop of the 1100 city wall, um, which even though, um, as I think we mentioned earlier, um, some of it was destroyed uh, to, to build the Dublin City Council offices, but um, a, a quite an impressive stretch of it still remains there in the Woodkey venue. Um, the core idea of the Tales lecture series was to use biography to access the history of the medieval city. So each tale was a biographical story of a different medieval Dubliner. So we started out, our earliest, I think, was Abbot Barrett. Uh, who was uh, the abbot of the monastery of Dovlin in the 7th century. Um, so this was a, a monastery that may have been located just south of where Dublin Castle is now, although the site um, of that monastic enclosure is, um, is contested. Um, but this is before the arrival of, of the Vikings to Ireland and before the sort of traditional date for the, for the foundation of the city. <clears throat> Went all the way up from, from Abbot Barrett in the 7th century to uh, the 16th century, kind of into the Reformation and how a few different Dubliners dealt um, with, with the changes that the kind of end of the Middle Ages brought. Um, so what we tried to do is really sort of um, get little biographical windows into Dublin's medieval past 
um, you know, over over a thousand years. Um, and I think as humans, we really do connect to personal stories. Dawn mentioned this earlier um, when she was talking about Isolde's Tower. The history feels so much closer and more real when we can experience it through a, a person's life, through the story of someone's life. So Grace O'Keefe and I um, ran the tales in, in their first year, which I think was 2010. Um, and then Cherie Peters, who was also a PhD student at Trinity, joined us and did a huge amount of work on the series over the three years that it ran. And once the, the first set of tales uh, lectures ended, Anya Foley, uh, also a, a long-standing friend of Medieval Dublin, took over organizing the lunchtime lectures um, and uh, expanded into milestones of Medieval Dublin about these sort of specific um, important events in the, in the city's history, um, and also back to more tales of Medieval Dublin, back to a kind of biographical um, model. Uh, and the thing that's really fun about these lunchtime lectures is that um, a lot of people come. There's a nice buzz about it. Um, and it was actually some of our sort of most faithful attendees that came every month, month after month, um, who asked us to make it into a book. Cherie Peters and I um, edited select uh, tales, lectures, I think 14 of them, into a volume for a popular audience. Um, so the all each article, each tale, was written by an active researcher, an academic who studies medieval Dublin. Um, but the tone and the writing is really aimed at a general audience. I just want to reiterate, as, as you've said, Quiva, just talking about um, resources for anyone that is curious about Dublin's medieval past. Those medieval Dublin volumes, um, I think that there are now 17 published the 18th is due to go to press sort of any day. They're all edited by our chairman, the chairman of the Friends, Sean Duffy, and published each year by Four Courts Press. So these 17, soon to be 18 volumes, are, are all called Medieval Dublin, Medieval Dublin 1, Medieval Dublin 2, Medieval Dublin 3. Uh, and they are the way to get all of the most up-to-date historical and archaeological research about the medieval city so much of the archaeological content especially just wouldn't be published or certainly wouldn't be easily available if Shaden didn't do all of this work that he does every year, organizing the symposium, getting these speakers together, um, and publishing the proceedings in the Medieval Dublin volume. So I'd really recommend that people uh, take a look at those, perhaps by using um, the bibliography on, on our site, fmd.ie. Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Um, I hope that all of you listening have enjoyed becoming part of our new public, this new informed space where we question these ideas of accessibility and power and bring them out there free and available to anyone who wants to listen. So once again, thank you so much to Dr. Sparky Booker and Dr. Quiva Whelan. Um, I'm Dawn Seymour-Kloss and we will see you next time. Public Sphere is hosted by the Trinity Longroom Hub and is produced by Don Seymour Kloss, Sahar Ahmed, Siobhan Callahan, Elizabeth Foley, Dr. Claire Moriarty, and Dr. Lilith Acadia, with many thanks to Angus O'Loughlin for the jingle. For more information about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can visit our show notes 
at bit.ly forward slash public sphere, hosted by the Trinity Longroom website. Thank you for listening.